The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably upon thy whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery, and by the tranquil operation of thy perpetual providence, carry out the work of man's salvation, that things which were cast down may be raised and that all through him by whom all things were made, even thy Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, welcome back. We are in an ongoing study of the history of Anglicanism. And we have seen over the course of the past several weeks that the realm of England had been in great turmoil. And that turmoil is easy to track. All you have to do is take a look at the various monarchs. We said that the initial break with Rome took place during the reign of Henry VIII. Henry was actually in search of an annulment from his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. He could not get that, and so he made a formal break with the church in Rome. But we said that during Henry's reign, very little changed in England. Even though the Pope was no longer the head of the church in England, that did not mean that the church automatically went in a new direction. We said that the Mass was still said in Latin. Indulgences could still be bought and sold. Um, Clergy were still expected to remain celibate. Things, for the most part, remained as they were during the reign of Henry VIII. But there were those who saw uh, in the king's marital difficulties opportunities. And some of those people, like Thomas Cranmer, who would eventually become the Archbishop of Canterbury, had been corresponding with people like Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon and eventually John Calvin and others on the continent. And they were very interested in what the Reformers were doing. And when Henry died and his only male heir, Edward, ascended the throne, Edward, who was the son of Henry VIII and his second or third wife, Jane Seymour, when he ascended the throne, he was only nine years old, But Cranmer and others saw an opportunity. They would serve as advisors to the young king, and they would begin to move England in a more Protestant direction, in a more Reformed tradition. And that is exactly what happened. For the six years that Edward reigned over England, uh, sweeping changes took place in the Church of England. For the very first time, the liturgy was published in the common tongue, that is, in the language of the people. That was the first book of common prayer in 1549. A more reformed book would come out in 1552, which would have prayers against the Pope in it, of all things. And it would have new words of administration during communion. Uh, You would not take this as the body of Christ anymore. The bread and the wine would be taken in remembrance only. So he said sweeping changes during the time of Edward VI. But he didn't last long. He died when he was about 15 years old, probably from tuberculosis. And when he died, his half-sister Mary ascended the throne. Now, there was somebody in between there, the queen for nine days, Lady Jane Grey. There was an attempt to make sure that a Catholic sovereign would not ascend to the throne. But that didn't work out. Lady Jane Grey was executed, and Mary Tudor ascended the throne. And this was Henry's daughter by his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. She was a Catholic. She was married to a Catholic, Philip of Spain. They were determined to bring the realm of England back in full communion with the See of Rome. And we said that this became known as the reign of Bloody Mary. There was a great deal of violence during this time period. Priests, laymen, and bishops, even an archbishop, were put to death during this time period. So this was a time of great turmoil, great religious wars all across England. 
But Mary eventually died. That's where we ended last week. We said that Mary died probably of ovarian or uterine cancer. And when she died, her half-sister, again, Henry VIII's daughter, but this time by his second wife, Anne Boleyn, ascended the throne. And everybody knows about Elizabeth. She is regarded as one of the great rulers of England, If she's remembered for anything, I suppose, these days, she's remembered for being a consummate politician. That's what many people think. They think that Elizabeth was a consummate politician. She would bring profound changes to the Church of England. And many people assume that because she was the consummate politician, the changes that she brought were just that. They were political changes, that she really wasn't all that devout. And I want to disabuse you of that notion right off the bat, because During the reign of her half-sister Mary, Elizabeth was, for the most part, kept under lock and key. Now, that doesn't mean she was imprisoned in the tower or anything like that. It's just that Mary knew that she had been raised as a Protestant. Mary was trying to produce an heir. She never did produce an heir, so she knew there was always the possibility that Elizabeth would ascend the throne. And she knew that Elizabeth was a pretender to the throne, a threat to her. But it was her flesh and blood. And so she kept Elizabeth basically under lock and key. She had freedom, she could use the royal palaces, but she could go nowhere without the queen's permission. Well, when you read the diaries of Princess Elizabeth in those early days, one of the things that you'll notice is that she was a very devout woman. But when she ascends the throne, there's no doubt about that, she is shrewd. And she recognizes the tremendous upheaval that had taken place during the reign of her sister, her half-brother, and her father. And she knows that England needs stability more than anything else, and she is determined to bring that. And one of the reasons there hadn't been stability was because of this conflict over religion, the tug of war between Protestants and Roman Catholics. I mean, just imagine living through those years, how difficult it would have been. The story is told about the famous Vicar of Bray. He was the vicar of the parish church of Bray, and he lived a long time, and he Uh, lived during the reign of Henry VIII, latter part of the reign of Henry VIII, and during the reign of Jane Grey, and during the reign of Edward VI, and during the reign of Mary Tudor, and he was still alive when Elizabeth I took the throne. Now, during the reign of Henry VIII, he was a devout Roman Catholic, the vicar of Bray. When Edward ascended the throne, he became a devout Protestant. When Mary came to the throne, he went back to being a Roman Catholic. And when Elizabeth came to the throne, he became a devout Protestant again. And somebody asked him, well, what do you want to be? Do you want to be a Protestant or do you want to be a Catholic? He said, all I want to be is the Vicar of Bray. (laughs) Well, you could just imagine what it was like to live in those years. This was a very difficult time. People didn't know what was going to happen the next day. So when Elizabeth came to the throne, she was determined to somehow bring a level of stability to the nation. And she wanted to settle, if at all possible, once and for all, these terrible religious conflicts that had been raging. This period became known as the Elizabethan Settlement. There had been the prayer book of 1549, we said, which was the first time that the liturgy was in the common tongue, the language of the people. In 1552, you got that more reformed book. The Book of Common Prayer was put to death with the reign of Mary I, Mary Tudor. But when Elizabeth came to the throne, she restored the Book of Common Prayer, but she made some changes. And this would become known as the Elizabethan Settlement. It took place 1558 to 1603. 
Within months, Congre- or Congress, Parliament <laughs> passed a new Supremacy Act. The new Supremacy Act declared that the sovereign was the head of the Church of England. No longer the Pope. Remember, Mary had taken the realm back into communion with the Pope. But now, Elizabeth's on the throne. She is a Protestant. This gives you an idea of the kind of devout woman that she was. Supremacy Act is passed. She is declared to be the supreme head of the Church of England. But the Queen rejects that title. She's not comfortable with that. She's been raised to know that there's only one supreme head of the Church, and that is who? That's Jesus Christ. That's right. He's the head of the church. He's the chief cornerstone. So she rejects the title supreme head for the title supreme governor of the church of England. In other words, her responsibility is to help govern the church, but she is not the head of the church. In 1559, the Act of Uniformity restores the second Edwardian prayer book, the 1552 prayer book, with some changes. The prayers against the pope are admitted, omitted, And both words of administration are now used when communion is given out. So in the 1549 prayer book, when the priest came down the rail and gave you the sacrament, he would say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. Same language that had been used in the old Latin mass, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. That implied that when you took that bread in your hands, you were literally feeding upon the flesh and blood of Christ. But in the 1552 prayer book, they omitted that. Transubstantiation as a doctrine relating to the Eucharist was out, and now the priest came down, or the minister, as he was called in the 1552 book, came down the aisle, and he would give you the words, take and eat this, in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving, which implied that this was not the flesh or the blood of Christ. This was something that was done in remembrance. And if we feed on Christ, we do not feed on him actually. We feed on him by faith in our hearts. Well, now all of a sudden, Elizabeth's here, and she knows that there's this conflict in the nation. The 1559 prayer book is going to restore both of those words of administration. C.S. Lewis put it well. He said, Jesus said, take and eat, not take and understand. (laughs) And that's exactly how Elizabeth felt about this. There is a mystery involved. Jesus did say to his disciples, this is my body, this is my blood. But he also said, take and eat this in remembrance. So Mary said, if it was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good for the Church of England. And so both words of administration were restored so that when the priest came down the rail, he would say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life. And the next person, he would say, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that those are the very same words that we use today in the right one liturgy. We use both of those words of administration. So you can see there's a bit of a compromise that is taking place here between the extreme Catholic position and the extreme Protestant tradition or Reformed tradition. There is a middle way. And this is going to chart the course for Anglicanism for some time to come. Here's something else that is restored, priestly vestments. I pointed out a few weeks ago that at the time of Edward VI, 
that all of the priestly vestments, those beautiful brocade chasubles and so forth, they all went away. And now when the minister or the priest celebrated Holy Communion, it was only to wear a simple white surplice, not even a stole, a simple white surplice. And, get this, during the Edwardian period, when he celebrated, it was no longer called an altar, it was called a table, and he didn't celebrate facing the east, which is the way we do today, He stood at the north end of the table, at this end of the table, in order to celebrate so that nobody would be given the impression that this was an altar where a sacrifice was taking place. In 1559, all of a sudden, priestly vestments are restored. So I said, you wonder why it was that they went away and we still wear them. It's because Queen Elizabeth I in 1559 restored the priestly vestments. So you can begin to see, as I said, there is a compromise that is taking place here. There is a middle way that is being made. Great care is taken in the choice and consecration of Cranmer's successor. Of course, he had been um, put to death by order of Mary, burned, we said, last week at a stake in Oxford. His replacement is Matthew Parker. Parker is a devout Protestant but he is more tempered in his approach even than Cranmer. Cranmer's 42 articles were drafted in 1553. They are pared down to 39 articles and adapted as the definitive statement of the Church of England's doctrine. And right up to the present day, priests in the Church of England still have to subscribe to the 39 articles of religion. Now, that was changed in the Episcopal Church, Uh, They were called the Articles of Religion. They were in the back. And since the time, since 1559, they had been known as a statement of Anglican doctrine. If you really want to know what Anglicans think, people sometimes say, well, Anglicans don't really have any formularies. They say the creed, yes, but they don't have any formularies of the faith in the same way that the Lutherans do. The Lutherans have the Augsburg Confession or like the the Presbyterians have the Reformed tradition. They have the Westminster Catechism. Anglicans don't have that sort of thing. We do. They're called the 39 Articles. But something happened in 1979 in the Episcopal Church. When the new prayer book came out, new, 1979, there are some people in our parish who weren't even here in 1979, but in 1979 when the new Book of Common Prayer came out, all of a sudden the 39 Articles were no longer referred to simply as, historical, or simply as the Articles of Religion, they were called historical documents. In other words, they were put under glass as if to imply that they have value in telling us what people once believed, but the church now enlightened no longer believes those things. But for a good period of time, the 39 articles were regarded as a definitive statement of Anglican theology. The Anglican Church of North America has restored them. They are no longer regarded merely as historical documents. They are regarded as a statement of what Anglicans believe. I encourage you, if you have never done so, to go back and read the 39 Articles of Religion. You will find them to be most enlightening. Let me ask you a question. How many of you think that the Presbyterians are the ones who believe in predestination and election? Ah, yes. Well, guess what? The longest article in the 39 Articles, the longest one, deals with predestination and election. So you might want to go back and read that sometime. 
So the 42 articles are pared down to 39. We still have them in the prayer book today. The clergy, of course, had not been highly trained. There had been a great period of turmoil. And so the church restored what was known as the Book of Homilies. This was a series of sermons written by Thomas Cranmer and others that were given to the clergy because they couldn't trust the clergy to preach a good sermon, so they gave them sermons, canned sermons for them to read on an assigned Sunday. There are a couple of clergy I'd like to give some of these to today. Not here, of course, but in other places there are... I'd like to write a few sermons for them. But the book of homilies outlines the Reformed theology now of the Church of England. And clergy are expected to subscribe to them as well. Now, again, the genius of the Elizabethan settlement is the fact that it is the via media. It is a middle way. A middle way between what? Between extreme Catholicism on the one hand and extreme Protestantism on the other. We said that the Reformation in England was different than the Reformation on the continent. Over there on the continent, in Germany and France and other places like that, they thought that anything that smacked of Catholicism, anything at all, needed to be thrown out. In England, the approach was that the church had been corrupted, yes, and it needed to be reformed. But that didn't mean that it had gone completely bad. There were still some elements of the church's life that were virtuous, that were noble, that were beautiful, and those things needed to be maintained. The parts that were corrupted, reform them. So it really was a reform movement in England as opposed to a revolution, which is what took place on the continent, with a lot of political overtones on the continent. So this becomes the middle way. The middle way between Catholicism on the one hand and Protestantism on the other. The book of Ecclesiastes said, a cord of three strands is not easily broken. And as a result of the Elizabethan settlement, Anglicanism becomes a religion of three cords. Three cords, three things that help to chart the course really for decades to come. What are the three strands within Anglicanism? What are these three cords that hold things together? The first is Holy Scripture. During the reign of Elizabeth, the scripture is restored to the place of ultimate authority in the life of the church. Now, we said it's a little bit different here. They regard scripture not as the only authority for the life of the church, sola scripture, but rather scripture or the Bible has a place of primacy. It is the primary authority for the life of the church. Now, over on the continent, they said the Bible is the only authority for the life of the church. That's one of the reasons why they got rid of vestments and robes and all of that sort of thing. But in England, what they argued was that, yes, Scripture is the ultimate authority on all matters pertaining to salvation and doctrine and theology and all of that, but there are some things that the Scripture simply does not address. Things like priestly vestments. What should priests wear? At what end of the altar should they celebrate? Those things were not laid out in Scripture anywhere. And so where Scripture was silent on an issue, they then appealed to the second strand, and that is tradition. Now, let me give you a definition of tradition. Because, you know, people can think all sorts of things are noble traditions. Here's the difference between what I would call tradition and nostalgia. All right? When I first got here, there was a member of the congregation who shall remain nameless who said to me, I was brand new as the rector. I mean, I, I didn't know the congregation 
and the congregation didn't know me, and I got here, and I had a meeting with some members of the congregation just to get to know them, and this man said to me right off the bat, he said, listen, your job is not to change anything. <laughs> he said, and whatever changes you make, they better be so slight that nobody even notices them. And I thought to myself, well, welcome to St. Philip's. I mean, of course, I, my job was to bring change. And I'm thinking, now, what am I going to do now? But I understood where he was coming from. He was concerned that I wouldn't have respect for the tradition. That I was just going to come in here and radicalize everything, revolutionize everything. So I told him that there was a difference between tradition and nostalgia. So let me tell you what it is. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Nostalgia is the dead faith of the living. So let me repeat that. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. The faith once delivered to the saints. Nostalgia is the dead faith of the living. So... They believed in tradition. They believed in those practices that had been handed down from one generation to the next faithfully in accordance with the Scripture. And so if the Scripture didn't say anything, for example, about what priests should wear, then go back and look at the tradition of the church, what the church has done over the course of decades, over the course of centuries, going back to the early church fathers and make your decision on the basis of that. But what if scripture is silent on the matter? What if tradition is silent on the matter? Then what do you get? Reason. Reason. You use reason. But it's never reason divorced from scripture and tradition. Now, some people like to describe this as the famous, or I like to say infamous, three-legged stool. That these are the three authorities for Anglicans today. Scripture, tradition, and reason. And all three are equal. Because, you see, if it's a three-legged stool, in order to stand, all the legs have to be equal. Now, the problem with the three-legged stool is, what happens if my reason is in conflict with tradition? Or my tradition is in conflict with Scripture? So you need to understand that as Anglicans... In the years following Elizabeth, right up to the time of the 17th century, when they began to talk about scripture, tradition, and reason, they talk about these as a hierarchy. Scripture's the ultimate authority. That's where you go to first. If scripture is silent, then you go to tradition. If the tradition of the church, the faith once delivered to the saints, is silent, then you appeal to reason. But it should always be reason, not individual reason, subjective reason, but the collective reasoning of the church as a whole. The Catholic Church, the universal church. Now, you see how this is different from what's going on in the Protestant scripture alone? No, it's scripture, it's tradition and reason, but there is a hierarchy. They are not equal. St. Augustine summed up what Elizabeth was aiming for in the Elizabethan settlement. This is what St. Augustine once said. He said, in essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. And in all things, charity. That's really what Anglicans were aiming for 
from the time of Elizabeth right up to the time of King Charles II, what became known as the period of the Caroline Divines. There was to be essential things, unity. We must be united. People can't go off and believe whatever they want, do their own thing. The church would have to corral them if necessary. But in non-essential things, things like what priests wear, whether you should stand or whether you should sit or whether you should kneel, in these things there should be liberty. And in everything that the church does, there should ultimately be charity. If we would subscribe to that today, how different the church might be. The church might actually pray on its knees on Sunday and not on its people every other day of the week. (laughs) All of this produced an English church that was historic. This is a church that could trace its lineage and its traditions back to the earliest days of the church. We said that Christianity had existed in England for centuries, brought over by the Romans. But what the English reformers wanted to do is to show that they were in a long line that could be traced right back to the church fathers. In other words, when they broke with Rome, they weren't breaking with Catholicism. They were being the true Catholic church. So they wanted to be recognized as an historic church, something that had continuity with what had gone before. The church would be apostolic. It would maintain bishops. You know, Presbyterians don't have bishops. And even those other Protestant denominations that do have bishops, Lutherans, for example, and Methodists, they are not bishops like Anglican bishops. When you become a bishop in the Methodist church, you serve for a term. Did you know that? You serve for a period. You're elected to office like a president. When the president, his office, when his term in office is over, what does he become? A former president. And so if you're a bishop in the Methodist church, you're, you're a bishop for a time, but when your term is up, you're the former bishop. Not in the Anglican tradition. When you're consecrated a bishop, you are a bishop for life. You are an heir of the apostles. Same is true for the priest. You are a priest for life. Now, you may not be in charge of a parish anymore. You may be retired, but you are still a priest, and you still have the authority of the church. So it was going to be a historic church, a church that could trace its lineage back to the time of the apostles. I've already alluded to this. It was going to be a Catholic church. Not Catholic in the sense of connected to Rome, but connected to the universal church. Anybody that came to the Church of England would see the marks of the universal church. Acts chapter 2, we're told that the church devoted itself to a number of things. To the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. If you were someone coming to an Anglican church in the wake of the Elizabethan settlement, what you would see is a church that did all of those things. It faithfully taught the scriptures week in and week out as the authority for the life of the believer. It also taught, however, the sacraments, the breaking of bread, duly administered in both kinds, bread and wine. You saw fellowship, the universal church, but the visible church being gathered together. And you saw a church that was growing. The Lord was adding to its number. So it was historic, it was apostolic, it was Catholic. It was, however, reformed. People sometimes say, well, what is an Anglican church? 
An Anglican church, simply put, is this. It is a church that is Protestant in its theology. And I'm going to define that very specifically in just a moment. Protestant in its theology, Catholic in its style of worship. You know, if you're a Baptist, how many, how many former Baptists do we have? Or maybe you are a Baptist still. I don't know. I'm, um, but how many of you, the first time you came into an Episcopal or an Anglican church, thought this looks really Catholic to me? It really does. All this kneeling and bowing and scraping and, you know, crosses going down the aisle and these robes and vestments and all of that sort of thing. To Baptists, it looks very Catholic. Now, how many of you are former Catholics or present-day Catholics or recovering Catholics, whatever it may be? (laughs) All right. When you first came to St. Philip's and you heard the sermons... How many of you thought, wow, that doesn't sound like what I've been hearing in the homily at the Catholic Church lately. This sounds pretty Baptist. You ever had that experience? I've been accused of that, by the way, which I'll be honest with you is quite a compliment, actually. But that's exactly what we were intended to be. We're intended to be Protestant. Now, when I say Protestant, I mean Reformed. If you read the 39 articles, the theology of the Anglican tradition is closest to which Protestant denomination? Just yell something out. (laughs) Presbyterian. That's right. Our theology is closest to the Presbyterian theology. If you read the 39 articles, closest to Presbyterian theology, officially. Now, we have some things in line with the Lutherans, but for the most part... The theology of the Church of England at this point was going to be reformed. It's going to be very much influenced by the French reformer John Calvin. So it's Presbyterian or reformed in its theology, and it is Catholic in its worship. Now what that means is that the Church in England is going to be unique. It's different. And those of you who are new to St. Philip's can tell that there's something different about this. It's not like the Presbyterians, which oftentimes have very plain buildings. We have these elaborate, glorious structures. And yet we're not Catholics. Catholics have glorious, elaborate structures, but obviously our theology is very different. We talk about the doctrine of justification by grace through faith as the doctrine of the standing church. So Anglicanism is unique. It is different. It is a middle way between Protestantism on the one hand and Catholicism on the other. And that means that you're going to see, if you go to an Anglican church, many things that are in common, but you will see some differences. There are a number of strands within Anglicanism. There's the charismatic strand. This can be traced back to the early days of Christianity in England. We said that many of the early missionaries who brought the gospel first to the British Isles were the Irish. They came across the Irish Sea. But the Irish Christians were much more charismatic than those Latin Christians that would eventually come to England, people like Augustine of Canterbury and so forth. So there is a stream within Anglicanism that is charismatic. Speaking in tongues, for example, is not something that is denied. In essential things, what? Unity. In non-essential things, what? Liberty. And in all things, what? Charity. There you go. So you have charismatics. 
you have these people. A little bit different, but if you go to some Anglican churches today, that's what you'll get. A few years ago, when I was the rector of St. Helena's, we were celebrating our tricentennial, 1712 to 2012, 300 years. So we were a colonial church like St. Philip's, a colonial church. So as we were celebrating our 300th anniversary, I invited the Bishop of London to come. And um, we didn't know that he would actually come, but he accepted the invitation. We were thrilled. But we got this big paper that we had to fill out saying, you know, what did you want him to bring? How many services was he going to do? Was he going to have security? All this sort of thing. And uh, it was interesting to have him there. I, I had to put him on an airplane, and we had to fly to Sewanee so he could get an honorary degree. And um, he went up to the counter, and I went up to the counter, and we both had our passports, and we're both in civvies. And he hands his passport over, and I hand my passport over, and the lady behind the counter looks at mine. She said, okay. And I got coach, you know. And uh, she looks at his, and she looks up. She looks at him, she looks up, and she says, are you serious? And he said, yes. All of a sudden, he's in first class. I'm like, what about the first going last and the last going first? I mean, what, what was that all about? Well, it turns out he was flying on a diplomatic passport. Because as the Bishop of London, he was a member of the House of Lords. All right? So he comes over. We've got all these things that we've got to fill out for him. And in the course of filling all of this out, they want to know, what is the tradition of the church? And I say, we're low church evangelical. And then it said, any vestments? And we said, yeah, we want him to wear cope and mitre. That's the bishop's hat, you know, and all that. Well, he shows up, and he does a great job. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful celebration. We're sitting in the airport waiting, him for first class, me for coach, and we're having this conversation. He said, Jeffrey, I want to ask you a question. He said, you described St. Helena's as low church evangelical. And I said, well, yeah, that, that, that's us. He goes, no, you're not. He said, you are evangelical. He said, but you're not low church. He said, you are actually high church. You're the lower side of high church, but you're high church. He said, in England, that's low church. It's coat and tie. They don't even wear robes. He said, they only have communion once a month, maybe. So this is a stream of Anglicanism. You wouldn't think so. You say, well, that looks like seacoast. But in some parts of England, that's part of the Anglican tradition. It's unique. But this is also part of the Anglican tradition. The high church Anglo-Catholic aspect. Now, we don't have too many Anglo-Catholic parishes in the low country. But there are a few. There are a few in our diocese. And this is part of the Anglican tradition. It looks very Catholic. And this, too, is part of the Anglican tradition. Simple morning prayer, robes, just like we are going to do in a few minutes. What unites all of these people? What brings them all together if their styles of worship are so dramatically different? It's those various strands. The scripture is the ultimate authority for the life of the church. They are faithfully passing on the tradition. And in those areas where there's any dispute, 
there's an appeal to the collective reasoning of the church. And that's why I say Anglicanism is unique. It is unlike any other denomination, any other tradition that can somehow hold all of these disparate parts together and say we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's very, very special, this Anglican tradition. Again, the Elizabethan settlement was an attempt not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Now, let me just run through briefly. We only have a few minutes left. Some of Cranmer's guidelines for worship. You can have that high church Anglo-Catholic service with all of the incense and the smells and the bells. You can have low church, simple Protestant evangelical service with morning prayer. You can have a charismatic service. You can have a very contemporary service. But Cranmer was very clear, there are certain things that should govern all of them. Now, you may have your own personal preferences. And I'm only assuming if you're at St. Philip's, you have a particular preference. But Cranmer said, while all of these are valid positions within Anglicanism, nevertheless, there were certain guidelines that he said must govern all services within the Anglican tradition. First, all traditions and ceremonies must mediate the gospel responsibly. In other words, that's the most important thing. And I would tell you that. You know, sometimes people will have to move away from Charleston. I know some of you can't imagine why anybody would leave Charleston. But sometimes you have to move away from Charleston. If you move away from Charleston, people will frequently come to me and say, where should I go to church? I'm moving up to New England. I cannot find an Anglican church anywhere. Where should I go? First thing I'm going to tell them, and I'll tell you, is this. You find a church that preaches the gospel. That's the most important thing. Don't be wedded to any particular denomination. The most important thing is the gospel. Cranmer acknowledged that. If you go to an Anglo-Catholic tradition, fine. You go to a Protestant tradition, that's fine. You go to the Evangelical, the Charismatic, the most important thing is that the gospel must be mediated, proclaimed responsibly, clearly. That's the most important thing. Whatever the service is, you need to hear the gospel. If you don't hear the gospel, I'm just going to say this to you. This is going to offend some people, but, you know, I'm already walking on a knife's edge anyway. If you go to a church and you do not hear the message of Jesus Christ in the first two sermons, don't waste your time going back a third. Go find a church where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, where he is lifted up that he might draw all men to himself. That's the most important thing. Second thing is this. All the traditions need to be explained clearly. Education is clear. It is key. All traditions must be explained clearly so that people can understand the meaning. In other words, you shouldn't be confused when you come into church. You should understand the significance of what you are doing. And here's the third thing. The traditions, whether they're local or national, must never be confused, confused in their importance with the unchanging truth of God's word. Let me go back to that definition I gave you. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Nostalgia is the dead faith of the living. The last words of the church. You want to know what the dying words of the church are? These are the last dying words of a church. 
we never did it that way before. <laughs> we never did it that way before. Perhaps we never did it that way before, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it that way now. The traditions that we have and that we hold must never be in a place of preeminence over the teaching of God's Word. Never. Everything we do, everything we do, everything we practice, it must be subordinate to the message of the Gospel. Now, that was Thomas Cranmer, the author of the Book of Common Prayer, back in the 16th century. And that's still sound advice for us today. And that's what we're always striving to do. Traditions are wonderful. I honor them. I will continue to honor those that are faithful to the gospel. Those that are not faithful to the gospel will dispense with. You've heard the old joke. How many priests does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Three. Right there it is. It's on the screen. It takes three priests to change a light bulb. It takes one to change the light bulb and two to talk about how nice the old light bulb was. Sometimes we can fall into that trap, can't we? And when we do, what happens is the church becomes stale. It loses its focus. It forgets the call of the gospel and the evangelical mandate. And we're going to see that even though a course was charted that was to take the Church of England into the centuries to come, we're going to see that as time went by, even good traditions, because they were not properly explained, lost their power, and the church became stale. And it would take somebody with a new vision who'd had a strange warming of the heart to come in and call that church to repentance and to rekindle that evangelical zeal. It would be some time before it happened. It would be until the 18th century, but eventually he would appear on the scene. He and his brother and a partner in the gospel. Those three men were John Wesley, Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield. And we'll take a look at them in the weeks to come. So you are part of a marvelous tradition, my friends. It's something unique. You won't find it anywhere else. It is a precious jewel. It needs to be cherished, but not worshipped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign over the affairs of men and nations and churches. And there was tremendous turmoil. There was a great deal of sin and violence in those years between Henry VIII and Elizabeth I. And they were by no means perfect people. But you are the God who works all things together for good. And what England bequeathed to the world was a precious part of the Christian tradition. A tradition that I believe still has the power in the 21st century more than ever, and perhaps better than any other tradition, to reach out with the life-saving news of Jesus Christ. Fill our hearts with a sense of gratitude for this great tradition, with a sense of understanding for it, and with a desire to carry it on that this world which is so broken, so confused, which is hurting so much, 
might know the love, the power, the grace, and the salvation of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, and in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you.